Welcome back to our journey through uh, God's story, which also is part of your story, or your story is part of God's story, as uh, your, your journey in life intersects with God's journey in life. The Bible is like a mural that tells a single story. We repeat that phrase each week because we need to understand how your life and the, the life that God is, is planning and his story are all interconnected and they weave together like a giant tapestry. As the video kind of alerted you to what we'll be looking at today, we'll be in the book of Kings. Kings is uh, one of the most uh, difficult, in a sense. Uh, Chronicles is also a repetition of what takes place in Kings. And the thing that's so confusing about the book of Kings is the constant name changes and how it jumps from the north to the south and the north to the south. And especially if you're a beginner in the Bible, you don't know what's going on. You don't know who these kings are. There's just name after name, and it's confusing. But... We'll try to uh, help you a little bit. I have a couple more videos lined up to uh, kind of illustrate who some of these kings were, etc. But last week we looked at the idea of when Israel became Egypt and, and how God had freed his people out of Egypt, uh, not to become like Egypt, but instead to be a light to the world. We saw how Solomon's divided heart, his divided loyalties, his attempts to appease others while keeping uh, God still somewhere in his heart led to a, a very big mess. He became kind of a tyrant to some degree, uh, like the Egyptian pharaohs. He had uh, lots of horses and chariots, like the Egyptian pharaohs. He was a taskmaster, like the Egyptian pharaohs. And so this situation was not something that God had desired, but it is what God had foretold would happen as the people rejected him as their king and chose their own king to be like the nations. And so they are becoming like the other nations instead of being unique and different. And so... Rehoboam entered the picture. That was Solomon's son and, and Jeroboam, who God had raised up against Solomon. God actually raised people up against Solomon because of Solomon's uh, divisive heart and how he had rebelled against God. And so this morning we, we picked this storyline up, and I want to give you a little bit of a background about the storyline of 1 Kings 17 to 19, which is what we will specifically be looking at today, chapter 17, 18, and 19 of the book of First Kings. While I give you a little bit of the background, I'm going to go ahead and put up the divided kingdom map on the screen for you so that you can uh, kind of see. Uh, from where you're, you're sitting, you might not be able to see real well, but you can see that there is a, a change in the color. There's this top portion called the northern kingdom or Israel, and the bottom portion is a southern kingdom or uh, Judah. Once Jeroboam the first sets the pattern of rebellion, in resistance to the prophets through the, the golden cows, Israel descends into turmoil. This turmoil is depicted in the literary structure of the book of Kings. Solomon reigned 40 years, and Jeroboam reigned about 22 after that in the north. And then that comes to about 60 plus, 62, give or take. That's 13 and a half chapters in, in the book of Kings. All right, suddenly... In chapter 14, 21, we go into hyperdrive, and the next 60 years is covered in just a couple of chapters. One of the things you've got to look at in Scripture is how much space is given to the elements of God's story, because that indicates, to some degree, the importance of it. This rapid-fire narrative lays out the constant rebellion and rejection of God's ways. In 1 Kings 15 and 16, it's a tedious and, and some would argue a tiresome read, especially if you're not familiar with what's going on in the story. As Peter Leithart puts it, Quote, a king rises, a king reigns, a king sins, a king dies, his son rises, his son reigns, his son sins, and his son dies. That's the repetitive nature 
of 1 Kings. Over and over and over and over. It's the same thing, time after time after time. The back and forth between the north and the south, the countless wars, the bloodshed, and more are almost mind-numbing and certainly confusing to the beginning student of the Bible. There's murder, mayhem, maniacs, and more. There's sexual exploits, suicide, stabbings, and some more. The repetition and the resulting mundaneness of the narrative is part of the theological point. This is what idolatry does. Idolatry causes massive chaos, but at the same time, it's mind-numbing. It's re repetition over and over and over. There's, there's nothing new under the sun. They do the same thing over and over in their idolatrous nature. The people that asked for a king, if you remember, hundreds of years ago, Saul, David, and Solomon had since died, and the United Kingdom of Israel has been divided. David, the, the, the king after God's own heart, he, he is kind of, if you look at the, the king's, he is the one that people are compared to. Do they love God like David did? But now in the north, we've, we've got a guy, Jeroboam, and the question is, are they evil as much as Jeroboam is? And so these are the comparisons that run throughout this, this whole uh, structure of the book. <clears throat> up in the northern kingdom, at this time in history where we pick up today, King Omri has just brought Israel out of 50 years of instability marked by two royal assassinations. Nadab and Elah, and then a royal suicide, Zimri. I'm going to show you a little video in, in a few moments that will kind of help you see this. As the nations were about to collapse, Omri put the nation back on its feet again, both politically and economically. He built a new city called Samaria to challenge the prestige of the, the now old city of Jerusalem in the south. Everything was better under Omri's reign, except spiritually. See, politically, physically, everything was like it was doing good. But inside... Not so well. They're crumbling. As related to God, things went from bad to worse. While Jeroboam was known as the man who taught Israel to sin, Omri was known as the man who did, quote, more evil than all who were before him, 1 Kings 16.25. His son Ahab, whom we will meet in just a moment, outdid the evil of his dad Omri, doing evil, quote, more than all who were before him, 1 Kings 16.30. When you see that phrase, doing evil more than all who were before him, that means that it's increasing. There's a crescendo effect. It's getting worse and worse and worse. It's like the book of Judges. When we look at the book of Judges, by the time we get to the last judge, they are more evil than they were with the first judge. The, the temple and the altar to Baal and Asherah offered a plethora of shameless religious practices aimed at instant gratification, pleasure, and sensuality. And while Yahweh might have been worshipped in Judah, Baal is the God of Israel, and that's the setting for King Ahab's reign and the sudden appearance of Elijah on the scene. Israel is in a crisis, and the God cops, that's what the prophets are, they're the messengers of God, they're the covenant enforcers, they're God's cops. So he sends in one of them, one of the covenant enforcers, to attempt to turn the failing nation back to its true God. The question is, will Israel return to the God that brought her out of slavery? In Egypt, or will she can continue to destroy herself by her descent into decadence in the world of sex and religion? And that's when Elijah shows up. And so when we look at Elijah today, we have to understand the context in which he's showing up and what God is doing. Remember, the stories in the Bible are not mainly about the characters. It's not about Daniel. It's not about Joseph. It's not about Elijah. It's about God's story. What is God doing in this situation? And so the, the chart on the screen now is, is the divided kingdom with the kings and the prophets of an overview. And so what I want you to notice here is that the, the first part on the left is the United Kingdom. 
And the kings were Saul, David, and Solomon. And the prophets were Samuel and Nathan. After the kingdom split, the north continues on the left side of the page, and the south is on the right side of the page. The south continues much longer than the north. Next week we'll see what happens to the north as they're destroyed in 722 B.C. by the Assyrians. The week after that, um, we will see how the south is then taken and destroyed by Babylon in 586 B.C. and what that has to do with you and me. But on the chart, notice that the king's names are on the right and the prophet's names are on the left. Now the point here is that God is continuously sending his messengers, the covenant enforcers, God's cops, to speak to his people to get them to change what they are doing. When there's a message from God, they're supposed to heed it, they're supposed to obey it. The prophets show up at critical junctures in the life of Israel. When Solomon finishes building the temple, Yahweh appears and warns him that the temple will only stand if Solomon and his sons keep the commandments. Solomon didn't listen. The temple will be destroyed. When Jeroboam I finishes building the shrines for the golden cows at Bethel, a prophet confronts him and warns him that Josiah will destroy Bethel. Jeroboam didn't listen, so Josiah will end up destroying Bethel. Today's portion of God's story will focus primarily on Ahab, the king of the north. So we're not going to deal so much with the south. We're going to focus on what happens in the north, all right, and what God's messengers do. Ahab's family tree is shown on the screen. At this time in history, all right, Omri, all right, as I mentioned earlier, had just brought the people out of um, 50 years of instability. Okay, Omri's son Ahab, all right, is going to marry a woman named Jezebel. All right, you probably don't know anybody named Jezebel because people don't name their daughters Jezebel because Jezebel is a bad name. Jezebel was the wicked witch of the north. Okay, she's the wicked witch of the north. Her daughter Athaliah is the wicked witch of the south. Right? Doesn't far, fall far from the, uh, the tree, right? So Jezebel is a Phoenician woman. She's a foreign woman that worships foreign gods. She worships Baal. So when Athaliah, I'm sorry, when Jezebel and Ahab marry, Jezebel brings Baal with her to Ahab's house. Now Ahab is part of Israel. So who is Ahab supposed to worship? God. God, Yahweh. But Jezebel gets in there and brings Baal in, and this is what is going to be the domino effect and the downfall of God's people, the north and partially the south as well, because they're going to become idolatrous people, and will God put up with idolatry? No, he will not. When he says that he's a jealous God, that's what he means. It means that he has, he has married spiritually, he has married Israel, and if Israel is going to play the prostitute, then Israel will pay the consequence. God doesn't deal with his spouse having an affair. And so <clears throat> Omri and his son Ahab, who marries Jezebel, is who we're specifically looking at today. So I'm going to show you a quick video that's going to put these into uh, perspective for you. Jeroboam is king of the northern tribes, now called Israel, for 22 years. Then his son Nadab becomes king. Zimri killed Elah, so they surround him, and Zimri 
He figured he was going to get killed anyway, so why not go out with a bang? So next, the Israelites took a guy named Omri to be their king. Was he a good king? The Bible says he did more evil than all the kings before him. Oh, my. It's hard to find a good king. Yes, it was, especially in the northern tribe. So that little clip is from What's in the Bible uh, video series with Buck Denver. That's um, after Phil Vischer made the Veggie Tales, then he, he made these. So the, that's what we're looking at in the Northern Kingdom. And so the, the division that takes place and the kings in the north, all right, in reality, you can see that things are not going very well in the north. Jeroboam was chosen by God to lead the people, but he led them straight to idolatry. And this continues on. You can see on this next slide that the uh, kings of the of the north, the divided kingdom, all right, says zero good kings, 20 evil kings, all right? So there's eight good kings in the south and 12 evil. So both of them have 20 kings in the division, all right, after your three from the United Monarchy. Some of you I know I'm, I've already lost you, right? So just stay with me, all right? We're going to focus just on Elijah and Ahab in a minute. All right, so how many good kings are there in the north? Zero. There's no good kings in the north. They're idolatrous. They, they worship the idols, the golden cows, okay? And so that is not a good thing, obviously. In, in the south, there is uh, a few that are good, but we'll look at them later on. So Elijah enters the picture, all right? Um, who is Elijah, all right? Elijah is a guy that does a lot of cool stuff, and so does his successor, Elisha. Um, he is going to announce a, a great drought in chapter 17. He gets fed by ravens in 17, 2 to 6. He helps a widow. He defeats uh, prophets of Baal and Asherah. He flees from Jezebel, and then he witnesses God's great presence, and then he's taken to heaven. So Elijah has this awesome, awesome story that's mainly covered in chapters uh, 17 to 19 of 1 Kings. All right? So if you're, if you're ready and you've got your Bible, some of this will be on the screen, some will not. We're going we're gonna to kick off here, all right? My first point this morning is God reveals himself, okay? God reveals himself from 1 Kings, chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. 1 Kings 17, 1 through 7. Now, Elijah the Tishbite from the Gilead settlers said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, I stand before him, and there will be no dew or rain during these years except by my command. And then a revelation from the Lord came to him. Leave here, turn eastward, hide yourself at the Wadi Harith, where it enters the Jordan. You are to drink from the Wadi. I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. So he did what the Lord commanded. Elijah left, and he lived by the Wadi Harith, where it enters the Jordan. And the ravens kept bringing him bread and meat in the morning and in the evening, and he drank from the Wadi. And after a while, the Wadi dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Now, as we, as we look at this passage of Scripture, and we, we get the... The, the setting for what's going on, we see that Ahab, the, the son of Omri, the seventh king of Israel, he's married to Jezebel, as I mentioned, the daughter of the Phoenician king. And here suddenly, look at the first word of the text, okay, if you have your Bibles there, it says, now Elijah the Tishbite. Now, wh where is he coming from? He's not in the story. All of a sudden, he just shows up out of nowhere. And that happens several times in these three chapters. He suddenly just shows up out of nowhere. That's how it is. Everything's going fine, and then all of a sudden, God sends a messenger. Boom, go there. You see this in Scripture frequently. You can even see it in the New Testament. As God takes uh, the evangelist Philip 
and boom, he just has him show up somewhere. And then boom, he disappears after he talks to the eunuch and he's somewhere else all of a sudden. God sends his messengers. Boom, they're all of a sudden in the story like this. We're, we're in a bankrupt society at this point. King Ahab has, has led the people uh, very much astray. Idolatry and, and Baal worship, uh, mostly influenced from his wife Jezebel, has, has taken over uh, the country. There's been no rain going on. It says, Elijah has said, as the Lord God of Israel lives, I stand before him and there will be no dew or rain during these years except on my command. Now, why does this even matter? Why is rain a big deal? You have to understand the cultural context. They live in an agricultural society. No rain means no crops. No crops means no food. No food means death. All right? So what we're dealing with here is life and death. All right? No rain, you die. They don't have grocery stores, okay? There's, there's no Walmart. There's no neighborhood Walmart. There's, there's no uh, Winn-Dixie. There's no Publix, okay? There's, there's none of that. No Aldi either. So none of them, okay? No rain, no food, you die. All right? That's as simple as it gets. All right? It's still like that in parts of the world today. And so the deal is this. Who provides the rain? Well, Jezebel says Baal does. Jezebel says that Baal is the god that controls the rain. Well, the Bible and Israel's people and the south and Moses and everybody else, they say Yahweh is the one that provides the rain for the crop. And if you'll obey him and stay faithful to his covenant, he promised to give rain so you would have the food you need. So the debate here, the war, the issue is a spiritual one. Okay? You and I are in a spiritual war. It's always been that way. All right? It's between God's people and the serpent's people. And Ahab and Jezebel are not on God's side, okay? And so the war here is over who is the God. Now, one of the things that happens, we mentioned this last week, is that when Jeroboam put these golden cows in place, he probably was not trying to completely eradicate worship of Yahweh, just like Aaron in Exodus wasn't. Instead, what they're doing is, is they're making uh, something that you can see to worship God, all right, because God was the invisible God. Commandment number two says don't make a graven image, no, no idols to, to fashion to look like me because you don't know what I look like, okay? So you're just making a mess of me. Now, what um, Jezebel is doing, though, is, is going to the next step. Jezebel wants to replace Yahweh as the national God, right? So what do you mean national God? Well, I mean that even when they were being idolatrous and worshiping cows, they were still worshiping Yahweh. They were worshiping him in the wrong way. They would sometimes add other gods, but Yahweh was still like the super god, if you will. All right? Well, what is uh, happening with Jezebel is she wants to kick God out. Okay? So Baal's the super god, not Yahweh. So that's what this battle is about. It's about who's the real god. All right? So God comes in and he speaks. The revelation. Notice that it says in verse 2, a revelation from the Lord came to Elijah and said, leave here. Notice in verse 8, it says the word of the Lord came to him. That's another way of saying revelation. Notice in chapter 18, verse 1, after a long time, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. God's revelation is one of the first things that we see here. Okay? There's no rain. Elijah is confronting not just Ahab, but the political religious alliance that Ahab and Jezebel had made with Baal. Okay? They're trying to replace Yahweh. And Elijah 
hears and knows the voice of God. Now listen, I know sometimes it's hard to figure out what God's trying to say to us. Don't know if I should go here. Don't know if I should go there. Should I take this job? Should I take that job? Should I stay here? Should I move somewhere else? But Elijah didn't have any problem hearing. Elijah heard from God, and he knew what God was saying. Proverbs 29, 18 says, Without revelation, people run wild, but one who listens to instruction will be happy. Without revelation, people run wild. The NLT puts it like this, I believe. Without the revelation of God, people run amok. They're cast off restraint. King James says, without vision, people perish. But that word vision is revelation of God. It has to do with the revelation of God, the word of God. Your number one need is the revelation of God in your life. That's your number one need. Your number one need is that God would reveal himself to you so that you would know who he is and how to live your life. And the, the summation of the matter for you is this. God has revealed himself in the pages of the scriptures, recorded down for you. You don't need some additional extra-biblical revelation. Now, God may choose to do that to people, but you don't need that. Your number one need is the revelation of God in your life. The study, meditation, memorization of scripture, it must be your daily food. It must be more to you than physical food as it was for Jesus for the 40 days and nights that he was being tempted in the wilderness. Jesus didn't need bread. He didn't need a pizza. He didn't need a Coke. He needed the revelation of the word of God. If Jesus wanted the word of God, if Jesus meditated on the word of God, then how much more do you need the word of God? Notice that the Lord does not tell Elijah all the details up front. He tells him what he needs to know. He's on a needs-to-know basis only. That's what you're on, a needs-to-know basis only. You can't handle the full truth, probably, of what's coming down the pipe. When Abraham was ready to sacrifice Isaac, God spoke up and gave Abraham directions. When the three Hebrews were in the fiery furnace, the Lord walked with them through the fire. When Daniel was cast in the lion's den, the Lord shut the mouths of the lions for that moment. In the moment, needs-to-know basis. That's how God operates. That's what he's doing. When Moses and the children of Israel were pursued by the Egyptian army and had their backs to the Red Sea, God, in his timing, parted the waters and guided them to safety. They didn't show up at the waters, and the waters were already parted, and they just kept going on through. Nope, they had to stop there because the waters were there, and all of a sudden, oh no, the Egyptians are behind us. What do we do now? Then God parted. Need to know basis. When Jonah was cast off the boat during the storm, the Lord had a great fish all prepared to care for Jonah. Right timing, right place. On the eve of Peter's execution, the Lord had him freed from prison. On the night before the execution of Mordecai, a sleepless king finds out that Mordecai saved his life and was not rewarded. He's rewarded the next morning. All in the nick of time. In our perspective, in the lower story perspective, but not in God's perspective. He's already got it lined up. He already knows all the details. Elijah's not out trying to make a name for himself. He's basically in seclusion. It's him and God and the twice daily raven droplet shows up as you continue reading the story. God tells him to go off and live by the wadi. And what happens? The, the bird brings him the food. It's an unseen bird on top of that. The raven. 1 Kings 18.1 says, After a long time, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year. Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain in the surface of the land. Again, you have the revelation of God. What sparks the movement from Elijah? The revelation of God does. God says, go, and he goes. Get up, go. The revelation of God. You know the revelation of God in your life, and you can't do what God's calling you to do. 
What are people all around the world seeking? Revelation. What do people in pagan nations, animistic nations, polytheistic nations, what do they seek? They seek revelation. All through the Bible, why are the pagans messing with the entrails of animals and the livers and the hearts of animals? Why, why do pagans throw stones and sticks in the ground and then they analyze how they landed to figure out what to do? Why do people go to psychics called the psychic hotline, go get their poems read, go read tarot cards? Why do they do any of this? They're looking for guidance and direction in life. They're looking for revelation in how to live their life. And we've got revelation, but what do we do with it? The whole world is looking for revelation of the true God. We've got it, and half the time we sit on our rear end. The revelation of God is the first thing you need. But you've got to do something with it. You've got to go obey it. Moses, or I mean Elijah didn't sit there. He got up and went when God said go. You don't just need God's revelation. You need to know that God restores. God restores life. God restores the land. In 1 Kings 17, as we continue, you look at verses 5 through 7. So it says, Elijah did what the Lord commanded. Elijah left, and he lived by the wadi. The ravens kept bringing him bread and meat in the morning. After a while, the wadi dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Verse number 8, the word of the Lord came to him and said, Get up and go to Zarephath that belongs to Sidon and stay there. Look, I have commanded a woman who is a widow to provide for you there. So Elijah got up and he went to Zarephath. And when he arrived at the city gate, there was a widow woman gathering wood. And Elijah called to her and said, Please bring me a little water and a cup and let me drink. And as she went to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I don't have anything baked only a handful of flour in a jar and a bit of oil in the jug. Just now I'm gathering a couple of sticks in order to prepare it for myself and my son so we can eat it and die. Then Elijah said to her, Don't be afraid. Go and do as you have said. Only make me a small loaf from it and bring it out to me. Afterward you may make some for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord of God says, the, the God of Israel says, The flour jar will not become empty and the oil jug will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the surface of the land. So she proceeded to do according to the word of Elijah. Elijah, she and her household ate for many days. The flour jar did not become empty, and the oil jug did not run dry, according to the word the Lord had given. Now, so God sent Elijah to the city, the city of Zarephath. This is an enemy territory. You see the Zarephath map. You see where Israel is in the middle? See where Judah is on the bottom? Go all the way to the top left. It says Zarephath up there. Right below Sidon. Tyre and Sidon. Those are Phoenician cities. Zarephath right in the middle. It's a Phoenician city. That's where Jezebel's from. God sends him into enemy territory. Right into the heart of Baal worship. Are you able to live in the midst of paganism? You know, we always want it easy. Easy is, you know, sometimes better, right? But easy is not how life is. Okay, we're too much of a wuss. The rest of the world lives in persecution. He sends them right into the heart of the spiritual battle, where the Baal worship is. And he sends them to this woman. This woman's about to die. She has no food. Why? Because there's no rain going to be like that for three years. She's going to bake some bread, 
her and her, bo- her son are going to eat. It's going to be their last meal, and they're going to die. Elijah says, hey, listen, just wait. Give me some bread first. What? It's my last loaf. You want me to feed you first? Yeah, feed me first, and then guess what? You won't have to die because God will make that flour and that oil continue on for three years or however much longer the famine was going to be. And guess what? That's exactly what happened. So God takes care of Elijah. Okay, God, God restores both him and her. He restores life. He provides sustenance. He, he provides what is needed. He provides the resource needed. He keeps Elijah alive. Where? In the enemy territory. He's behind the enemy lines. And God provided for him. Isn't that how Moses grew up? In the Pharaoh's household? The man trying to kill him was the man feeding him. Until he grew up and was old enough, and he had to flee. Elijah's going to flee in chapter 19 also. And then Moses came back and decimated the Pharaoh's household. All supplied at the expense of the Pharaoh. So the ravens fed Elijah. This widow woman feeds Elijah. But that's not all that happens in her life. You know, her, her, her and her son, eventually he, he dies. And she's, uh, she's sad, obviously, by this. But he has the power of God in his life. Elijah does. And so he is able, in this situation, to actually bring restoration, to bring life back to this woman and her son. If you read through the rest of the passage, you'll, you'll see that the widow's son is raised in verses 17 through 24 of chapter 17. That God actually resurrects or resuscitates this man, young boy, man, whatever he is. Now, there's only two places, two people in the Old Testament that are associated with bringing someone back to life. It's Elijah and Elisha. That's it in the Old Testament. These are shadow figures of Jesus in the New Testament. It's just a glimpse into what God is going to do through his power and when Jesus finally comes. So he's in the middle of enemy territory, okay? And God is, is taking care of him there. But this is not all, all God does. God also rebukes, okay? When the messenger comes, God rebukes. Who is he going to rebuke? Well, Ahab and Israel. We find in 17.1, there's the initial rebuke. Elijah says, no rain. No rain is a curse. See, we reversed everything. In our urbanized setting, we prefer no rain, or at least let the rain come at night, right, while we're sleeping. So, and I do prefer it at night also. But rain is a blessing, because without rain, there's no food. And without food, we die. Okay, so rain is a blessing. Ironically, in American urban churches, if it rains on a Sunday, pastors generally don't like it. Because you know what happens to attendance? It plummets. Because we're too lazy to brave the rain and get in our cars and drive on the roads. People in other countries will walk the same distance. Pastor Skip's homeless congregation will sometimes walk over an hour in the rain to come to his service. We can't get in our cars. I'm not saying you can't. I'm just saying in general. This is what happens. But God rebukes them, okay? In 17.1, but also in 18.21, chapter 18.21, he rebukes the people. Elijah approached all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. But the people didn't answer him a word. 
same thing that Joshua says. Choose you this day whom you're going to serve in Joshua 24. If you want to serve the Baals, then go serve them. But stop playing games. Stop pretending like you're serving God. Choose one. Pick one. So God rebukes him. God rebukes Ahab. Continuously in chapter 18, the rebuke continues as well. In 18, verses 20 and 21. And so Ahab summoned all the Israelites and gathered the prophets at Mount Carmel. And why are they gathered there? They're gathered there because God is going to demonstrate who he is. God is going to demonstrate the power of himself over Baal. As the word of the Lord comes to Elijah, and as Elijah reveals this revelation to the people, he's, he's going to show who he really is. God also reproves. God reproves the people. In 1840, chapter 1840, not the year 1840, in chapter 1840, it says, Elijah orders them, seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let even one of them escape. They seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the Wadi Kishon, and he slaughtered them. That's harsh. Why does he slaughter them? What do, you, what do you do with somebody that's wrecking your system? What do you do with a bad apple? What, what do you do with the mocker and the scorner? This is a problem. This goes on in your schools, all you students. Do you know who the mockers and scorners are? You remove the mocker from the classroom, and what happens to the classroom? It becomes quiet. It becomes disciplined. The teacher can manage it. You leave the mocker and the scorner in the classroom, and what happens? Chaos. Disruptive. There's no teaching going on because you've got a mocker and a scorner. You remove them. That's what you do. You remove them. God reproves them in 1840. Not only that, God gives refuge. If you look at God's people, you'll see that God's people follow after this as well. In our story today from chapters 17 through 19, there's two good examples of refuge being provided. And chapter 18... We see a man named Obadiah. Chapter 18, verse uh, 13. Now, Obadiah was a man who was actually working for King Ahab. So he's working for the bad king, the enemy. But look what he does. He ran, runs into Elijah, and he's a little bit afraid. He's out looking for water. That's what's going on here. Ahab and Obadiah are out looking for water because they can't find anything, and everything's dying. And so wasn't it reported to my Lord what I did when Jezebel slaughtered the Lord's prophets? So Jezebel is not only uh, promoting Baal worship, but she's slaughtering the prophets of God. He says, I hid 100 of the prophets of the Lord, 50 men to a cave, and I provided them with food and water. So Obadiah is a guy working for the enemy that at the same time is secretly hiding God's people and providing food for them. Now you can see examples of this all through history. How do people like Daniel work for Nebuchadnezzar? Daniel in the Bible. How do people like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego work under Nebuchadnezzar? How do they work under Belshazzar, who is probably maybe worse than Nebuchadnezzar? Yet the, the story we have in scriptures that they did, and that Daniel was faithful, not only to God, but he was also one of Nebuchadnezzar's uh, top advisors. We really don't grasp how to do that in our culture. We either run from the situation and go hide, or we become just like them. 
But what we're called to do with Scripture is actually work in the situation and represent God and be a light to God. You know something? If you are an awesome, dynamic Christian, everybody knows you're a Christian, and they know they can't get you to lie, they can't get you to steal, they can't get you to cheat, but you are the very best at what you do, they might not like that you're a Christian, but almost every employer will like the work you do for their company. Now, you may find some that like Jezebel, they want to kill you. But most of them, they're going to like the fact that you actually are good for their company. Because guess what? An employee that doesn't steal and doesn't cheat and doesn't lie and is actually the best, that, that's good for a company. And so what God told the people when he sent them into exile, the Babylon is he says, settle down. You're going to be here for 70 years. So work hard and pray for the peace and prosperity of the city. What? We want Babylon to succeed? Yeah, he said. You do. So settle down. So Obadiah, he's in this situation. And he's helping God's people. He's using uh, his position to hide them in these places and get food. Where do you think he's getting food from? There's a famine. Who's the last person to run out of food in a famine? The rich, the king. Obadiah works for the guy. So where do you think he's getting the food from? The king. I think, once again, we've got, we've got the enemy supplying food to God's prophets, a hundred of them, that are hiding in these caves. And then Elijah is provided refuge in chapter 19, verses 3 and 4, from Jezebel. After the whole incident with Mount Carmel that we'll briefly touch on in a moment, it says Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so God sends his messengers, right? And now Jezebel sends her messenger. Here's her messenger. May the gods punish me and do so severely if I don't make your life like the life of one of them by the time tomorrow. In other words, she said, I'll kill you by tomorrow or I'll let me die. Well, Elijah doesn't get killed. He ends up dying. But anyways, that's what happens in that story. So God gives Elijah refuge from this, this mad woman, the wicked witch of the north. God gives refuge. We already mentioned how God gives refuge in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 8 and 9, when Elijah is in Zarephath in the Phoenician territory, Jezebel's territory. He's in the lion's den, and God provides for him. Baal can't provide the sustenance needed for life. Okay, think about it. The widow woman again? Baal, who's supposed to be the one in charge, cannot provide for his own people. So Yahweh comes in with his prophet, and Yahweh provides for the people. Demonstrating again, just like with the Egyptian exodus, that their gods are no gods. So, to continue on, we look at how God reigns over creation. This is chapter 18. We're not going to spend a ton of time on it. We'll briefly look at it. This is a story that if you know anything about Elijah, you probably know about this story. The showdown with the prophets. It's one man, Elijah, versus all these prophets of Baal and their others. Now, these prophets weren't just prophets of Baal. They were advisors to Jezebel. Okay? They, they, they were people that gave counsel and advice. So Elijah shows up, and then what happens in, in this, this storyline here? You pick up with me. It's not going to be on the screen. 
But in chapter 18, we already looked at verse 20, how he summons the Israelites and they gather the prophets at Mount Carmel. And he says, choose, who, who are you going to follow after? So again, this is a spiritual issue. Who are you going to follow after? So Elijah says, I, I'm the only remaining prophet, but really there's, there's more that God has hidden away. So as you saw in the video, they, they get these sacrifices, and the prophets of Baal are calling out all day. Baal, light the fire for us. Light the fire for us. And it never happens. Elijah mocks them and makes fun of them. Hey, maybe Baal's asleep. Maybe he's using the bathroom. Just wait. Yell a little louder. They start cutting themselves. See, this is all part of the pagan aspect of Baal worship. The idea was that, that Baal goes into like a, a deep winter nap and hibernation. And he comes back to life in the spring. And if your blood is running, blood, blood is about life, right, and death. And so that will help bring Baal back up, right? So all this stuff. You don't do that with God. God hates all that stuff. Elijah, as you saw in the video, he dumps water on top of everything, and then he just prays boldly. What does he pray? He prays that everyone would see and know that Yahweh is God. Same theme for the whole book of Exodus, that everyone would know and see that Yahweh is God. And what happens? Boom. A flash of fire from heaven, and it's consumed. And everybody recognizes and realizes who is God. All pagan religion is a power game. Dr. Arthur Ma was a pioneer missionary with the Christian Missionary Alliance, Borneo. His entire ministry among the Dayak tribal people of Borneo is a story of faith, suffering, and power demonstrations, more suffering, and more power demonstrations. The gospel under Ma's ministry had divided the Dayak tribal people. Some followed the missionary, while others continued with the power magic indigenous religious leader. In other words, you got the same thing that's going on in Elijah's day. While Ma was away, a village chief called the heads of the village and all the people together. He says this, We've always followed the spirits of the hills, the spirits of the rivers, the spirit of the jungle, until the Jesus people came to live among us. And now we're divided people. Who is God? The spirit man says the gods and the spirits of the forest, the rivers, and the mountains are the true gods. The Jesus people say Jesus alone is God. Today we're going to know who is God. I will set up a contest of the gods. Whichever God meets the challenge, he is the God we will all follow together. The leaders and the people all agreed. The chief then set the stage for the ordeal. He took the traditional power worker to one of the biggest longhouses. It was about 30 feet or more tall and 100 feet long. He called for a leader of the Jesus people. A young believer was put forward. This in itself was unusual. For their culture, because usually the older, wiser, respected religious person were to go against them. And, that, and this was a new believer on top of that. The chief gave a fresh egg to each of the men. The God who is the true God will preserve the egg as a servant. We will all follow the God who reveals his power. You are each to throw your egg over the house. How tall was the house? How tall was the house? 30 feet high. Throw the egg over the house. The true God will not allow his egg to break. The magic power worker went through his magic power rituals. He then hurled the egg over the long house. The elders stood on the far side to observe the result. It smashed into a thousand pieces. The young man lifted his heart to God. He said, show yourself to be the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth. Show to all the people that Jesus is your son. Show to everyone that we are your servants and that we speak your word in your name. He hurled his egg over the long house. 
that fell to the other side and it bounced like a rubber ball without a single crack in the shell. If Jesus God is the true God, the chief shouted, we will all follow him. And they did. Does your egg bounce? This is a power ordeal. Who is God? The God of the egg that bounces. God reigns over creation. Not only does God reign over creation, as he demonstrated with Elijah and the prophets of Baal, but God reserves a remnant. In 1 Kings 19, 18, as we see this passage, we see that God has more than 7,000 in Israel that has not bowed the knee to Baal. Elijah was depressed and thought he was the only one. God's there saying, you're not the only one. Listen, you are not the only one. You might think you're the only one at your school trying to live for God. It's a lie. You're not the only one trying to live for God. Uh, you guys that go to high schools with thousands of students, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of other people there who are trying to live for God. Live for God, and might, maybe you'll meet up with them, and then you won't be by yourself. You're not the only one. When we came into this community, we knew from the get-go, okay, we were not the first people to come here with the gospel. There was already people believing here. We wanted to link arms with them for the kingdom of God. God reserves a remnant. He always has. He always will. 1 Kings 19, 18. 1 Kings 19, 19 and 21. It continues and he says, Elijah left there and he found Elisha, son of a Shaphat, as he was plowing. Twelve teams of oxen were in front of him, and he was with the twelve teams. Elijah walked by him and threw his mantle over him. Elisha left the oxen and ran to follow Elijah and said, Please let me kiss my father and mother, and then I will follow you. Go on back, for what have I done to you? Guess what happens next? Elisha follows Elijah, and Elijah disciples Elisha. When Elisha is taken up to heaven, Elisha takes over the ministry. Elisha does the same types of miracles that Elijah does, including raising someone from the dead. There's a remnant. There's a group of people. God has always left a remnant. Israel will be judged because of their bail worship. They will not be completely wiped out because God made a promise to David to keep someone on the throne. Christianity will not be wiped out. It may get whittled down and persecuted down to a tiny little group. That's what happened in China. And then you know what happened? In this country that was atheistic, where it was forbidden to be a Christian, all these little Christians in churches, house churches, factories, spread. Spread like wildfire. Nations can't stop it. They never could. They never will. Islam's not going to stop Christianity. You watch what happens. There's hundreds of thousands of followers of Islam who are rejecting it and coming to faith in Christ. Until it just doesn't make CNN. This is what God was doing in Elijah. I'm going to leave you with a question this morning. Does your egg bounce? that you chase after, that you should, that you follow. The God of Elijah brought fire down from heaven. The God of 
Dr. Ma is mission work, and those Jesus followers can bounce a royal. Is that true, y'all? Does your egg bounce? If it don't, we need a new egg man. And that's God. Yahweh of the Bible. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love and your mercy. Thank you for how you reveal yourself to us. Might we be faithful like Elijah was. Might we allow you to work through us, God, that your story would continue on. That people would, would see in our lives that we follow you. Yeah, we might blow it sometimes. We might get depressed sometimes. We might run sometimes. But let us be faithful, God. Let us get back up. The proverb says a righteous man, though he falls seven times, he gets back up. You be our strength, God. Help us to be people that are bold. Help us to be willing to be put out of the gangplank, God, that, that people would be able to see you work through us. To see that our eggs bounce. To see that you're the God that brings fire down from heaven. That you're the God that raises people from the dead. That you're the God that can do a work in their life like you're doing in our life. Let this be a reality of your life, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Alright, as you take a few minutes